Thanks for listening to the weekly sermon. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Kyle Hubbard. For more about this podcast and other resources, visit our website at www.riverinthehills.com. Every heart, every mind, every body, Jesus, would you sprinkle us with your blood? Would you wash us with your blood so that we may be truly clean and hear your word with faith and love and power? In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, oh yeah, if you need notes, just lift, slip your hand up and we'll have our hosts give those notes to you. This morning, we're going to dip our toes into the beauty realm of God. I say dip our toes because the subject of God's beauty is so vast, it would take a 10-part series to even begin to do it justice. It's all over scripture. I plan to give us this introductory glance at this topic by first looking at one of David's most surprising and provoking statements in this Psalm 27, specifically verse 4. Now, after we consider David's deepest heart desire and ambition in Psalm 27.4, we will shift gears and look at arguably the most comprehensive biblical description of the beauty of the coming king in Song of Solomon chapter 5. Now, you may be asking, why beauty? What's the big deal? Why is beauty so important and relevant to our lives? Well, for one... God created us with an inherent, God-given desire to love beauty and seek after it. It's a healthy and God-given desire to appreciate the beautiful, the majestic, the transcendent, the orderly. People travel, think about it, people travel great lengths and spend much time and money to see beautiful things in nature, to appreciate and revel and beautiful works of art, literature, poetry, music, design. The complex, think about this, the complex nature of the human eye. There are 137 different rods and cones, 137 million different rods and cones in the human eye. 130 million rods which give, which receive light, and about 7 million cones which receive color. So there are 137 million unique different parts of your eye that have one aim, to take in the most light and color and beauty possible. God's really invested in beauty. And think about even the base animal kingdom, the birds that you see flying around. If you've seen on planet Earth or other shows like that, the birds often choose their mate based on how beautiful their feathers are or how beautiful their dances are, or how beautiful their song is. It's wild to think about. And all of these realities scream one undeniable fact. We were made for beauty. Dostoevsky, hard to say that Russian name. Dostoevsky, he had a quote here that I love. He said, the awful thing is that beauty is mysterious as well as terrible. God and the devil are fighting there, and the battlefield is the heart of man. It's a profound quote from this Russian author, and I believe it's true. Beauty is the prize of this battlefield, and the battlefield is your heart. Well, the wonderful and comforting thing and reality is that our maker, 
is endlessly and indescribably beautiful himself. The Father, Son, and Spirit are well able to win this battlefield with their own intrinsic beauty. God himself is the definition of beauty. Of all the beauty that you see around you in nature, in art, in people, and what they make, of all the beauty that you've ever seen, imagine how beautiful the creator behind that beauty must really be. He is all the beauty combined, magnified a billion. And we're, when we see him, we're going to get it. We barely get probably .0001% of the beauty of God. And that's enough to wow us. That's why you're here on a Sunday morning and not on the lake or doing something else. It's because God has become at least a little bit beautiful enough for you to come to church. He's the definition of beauty. And just like the ocean of his love is never-ending, so too the ocean of his majestic splendor, there is no end. We will for billions of years be exploring the beauty of God, being fascinated endlessly by his majesty. He desires to meet our deepest longings, to behold beauty with himself. He wants to fill that beauty spot in our hearts. And along these lines, in preparing this message, my prayer to God is that the Holy Spirit would catalyze and spark each heart in this room this morning and those listening online to begin a lifestyle of searching and seeking out deeper revelations of God's beauty as revealed in Scripture by the Holy Spirit. And as a result of this searching and seeking, I believe that this beauty territory in each person's heart can become won over, captivated by Jesus himself. And I have strong confidence, born from real experience in my own life, that if we simply allow and invite Jesus to come in and conquer the battleground of beauty in our hearts, it will do us a world of practical good in every area of our lives. I believe the result of a conquered heart is that a thousand lesser counterfeit beauties, pulls and distractions, other lovers will fade away in the light of his glory and grace. The things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his radiant countenance. And because these thousand lesser beauties and other lovers will take a bow to his supreme majesty, a thousand connected problems to those lesser lovers and lesser beauties, they too, those issues, those fears, those doubts, they too will fade away. History bears this witness. The men and women of God who have made the most impact, eternal impact for the kingdom, were the people who were preoccupied with the beauty of God. You can look all throughout history. It's the same story. Now, if we ask and invite and allow, which we can do at the end today, Jesus to become our most magnificent obsession, I promise you the results in your life will be intensely gratifying. Another benefit of being enamored with God's beauty is that this lifestyle is actually a ticket out of the overwhelming negative dynamics of the tribulation that's coming upon the whole earth before the return of Jesus. We'll soon see that beauty was the way that David overcame the great pressure he was under in Psalm 27. It was a foreshadowing of the end times. Becoming a people who are fascinated with the one thing of God's beauty 
is one of the main ways that we become counted worthy to rise above and escape the snares of the increasing counterfeit beauties and demonic lust that the devil would seek to throw at all of us in an increasing measure before Jesus comes back. It's a ticket out. But catch this, it's not just enlightened self-interest that we would go after beauty. Much more importantly, for God's own sake, we should do this. As we pursue the majesty of God, the amount of glory given to him from each one of our lives will grow exponentially. As John Piper says, and if it's John Piper, you know it's biblical. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us. That's the chief end of man's existence, to glorify God and to enjoy him just like we enjoy beauty forever. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. And let me tell you again from real personal experience, experiential knowledge, there is no greater pleasure in the universe than having our hearts enraptured and enamored with the king and his beauty. I've tasted a lot of pleasures before Jesus. None of them compare to two minutes of his beauty taking over my heart. I live for those moments. And I'm a satisfied customer with the wonder of God. And I know you will be too. Satisfied friends of the bridegroom bring God much glory. Let's look at David's great desire in Psalm 27. He says this in verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, think of the end times here, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army man camp against me, in the end there'll be the most powerful army the world has ever seen coming against the saints of God, the believers, and the Jewish people. Though an army man camp against us, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. Why is he so confident? Verse four, one thing I have desired of the Lord. A big army? No. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or ask God questions in his temple. Get the, get the context here. David is surrounded by enemies, by armies, by wars and rumors of wars. His life is straight up in real imminent danger. But what is his ticket out of his fears? Is it a big army? Is it a bunch of supplies to, to go through the end time? There's nothing wrong with those, but that's not his main one thing. What is his ticket out of fear? His great escape. What is it? It's beholding the beauty of this beautiful God as his light, his salvation, and his strength. Seeking God's beauty and being in a real-time relationship with him by asking him questions and hearing from him and talking to him and spending real time with a real God. This was the stability of David's life and great turmoil. Let's get the bigger context of David's life too here when he gave us this psalm. David at this point of his life was the president or the king of the most powerful government in the Middle East at the time. Do you think his schedule was busy? He was the top military commander and war hero of Israel, of the most powerful army in the region as well. 
He was the most accomplished musician. He was a creative even. He was the most famous songbird as the sweet psalmist of Israel. He was also a highly skilled shepherd as this was his occupation from his youth. In general, David overall was anointed with supernatural wisdom and courage that could have made him preeminent in any mountain of society. But none of those things moved him like the one thing. He didn't live for any of those titles or accolades. He lived for one thing, beholding the beauty of the Lord in a prayer room of his day. You know this prayer room? In its most essential nature, it's just a window into God's beauty. It's just a window into beauty. That's all this room is. That's all worship is. It's just a window into beauty to thin the veil so we can see him a little bit more. This longing touched the deepest parts of his heart. This wasn't some sterile academic exercise. This one thing. This was desire. Look at that word desire. David could have had anything as his one thing. His dream, his hobby, his fascination, anything. He had every single option available to him at his disposal as king and head of the military. But his chief pursuit was dwelling with and looking at and talking to the majestic God. But guys, this didn't just happen. This one thing didn't just pop up one day. David, from his youth, cultivated a lifestyle of intentional pursuit of the Lord as his daily delight. When he was alone in his early years, like you guys in the youth group and the young adults, when he was in his early years, when no one was looking, when he was with his father's sheep in a menial job on the backside of the mountain, this was his one thing. When no one knew David's name, this was his one thing. And then when it got to the point where all of Israel sang about him, when everyone knew David's name and he became the hero, the champion, the most loved man in the nation, his one thing didn't change. David's one thing was consistent through smallness and bigness, through anonymity and fame, through failure and triumph. It was constant. This is really provoking. If you look at David's life closely, you'll see that this insatiable desire for God's beauty affected every area of his life. It touched his time, his talent, his giftings, his treasure, his pocketbook. Do you guys know that David put his money where his mouth was in this verse? His own money. He invested in today's calculations over $7 billion in the worship and prayer movement of his day by rebuilding the temple and staffing over 8,000 singers, musicians, gatekeepers. $7 billion of his own resources he invested into that room where the beauty of God was most magnified in the earth, where the immediate presence of God was there in the temple. Was David excessive in his pursuit of the presence? Did he overvalue God's beauty and relationship with him? Clearly, we know that answer is no. Jesus affirmed David's one thing in Luke 10, actually. Jesus himself, when he called Mary's activity of sitting at his feet in adoration and attentiveness, he said that was the better part. 
Jesus actually told Martha, her older sister, she was worried and busy. He told her, he said, only one thing is needed, Martha. And this was the one thing that was exactly the same as the Psalm 27, 4, one thing that David chose. That's amazing. I think Jesus here in Luke 10 was actually quoting and affirming his great, 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 great granddad, David, who was the man after God's own heart. <laughs> now this statement and this lifestyle from David and Mary gives us the general principle that the level of extravagance in our worship is directly proportional to the measure of value that we have in our hearts for God. I'll say that again. The level of extravagance of our worship is directly proportional to the measure of value that we have in our hearts towards God. I mean, just how much and what exactly did David see that possessed him with this gripping reality and pursuit, especially when he had all the options of the earth that is disposable? Disposal, not the thing you, you put food down. <laughs> Well, thankfully, we have other witnesses other than David and Mary to the beauty of God. Think just for a moment of those four living creatures in heaven that John saw in an open vision. These four living creatures, guys, live 24-7 in the unveiled immediate presence of the Father and of the Son. For billions of years, they have never gotten bored with the beauty of God. Because God himself is endless and eternal, his ability to fascinate them has been endless and eternal. We should take great encouragement from this. Let's look at the scene in Revelation 4 quickly. Revelation 4, starting in verse 6. Before the throne of God, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne, there were four living creatures full of eyes. Everyone say, full of eyes. In front and in back. These four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. Even their innermost parts were full of eyes. And they do not rest day or night, 24-7, saying, Holy, 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 holy Father, holy Son, holy Spirit, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. These four living creatures get it. We don't. They have unique understanding of this reality of the fascinating nature of God because they have been made, why? With eyes all around and within. We only got two. They have thousands probably. These guys are credible eyewitnesses. They really are. These living creatures right now, what's their activity? They're seeing a new facet of God's gorgeous grandeur every moment. Every new glimpse is transfixing their gaze and satisfying their fascination all over again to the point where they can never even dream of looking anywhere else. We should pray to become like them. We should pray that our heart would look like the four living creatures. I want my heart to be full of eyes around and within. I want my heart to be so captivated with God's beauty that I wouldn't even dream of looking anywhere else for affirmation or success. Think about this, guys. Even Apple and Samsung, with their cell phone technology, have tapped into the paradigm of the four living creatures, albeit in a carnal, worldly way. Every new iPhone seems to have an added eye on the back, an added camera lens. Why? Because humans are trying to capture and behold the most creative beauty that's technologically possible. 
But there's something, rather someone, who is so much better than anything you could capture on an iPhone. It's the uncreated Father, Son, and Spirit dwelling in the heavenly community and triangle of love and affection. That's what our eyes should be fixed on. How many camera lenses in your heart are fixed on the uncreated God? Let's believe that if Apple can put lenses on their iPhones, then surely the all-powerful, creative God has the ability to give us supernatural eyes in the lenses of our hearts to see him better. This is what the prayer in Ephesians 1, 17 and 18 is all about. Paul is basically praying for new camera lenses for our eyes, more and better and clearer and more high def. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you, give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. For what? For the knowledge of him, the beauty of him that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you may know and experience what is the hope of his calling, that you may see this beautiful hope, this blessed hope of the face of Jesus coming back in, in glory. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? He's praying for camera lenses for our eyes and for our hearts. Now with the time we have remaining, let's allow the Holy Spirit through his word to catalyze and spark some holy enlightenment in our hearts. Let's help ourselves out right now and expose the eyes of our heart to a biblical description of God's satisfying beauty. Song of Solomon 5. We can turn there now. If you have your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen too. Y'all doing well? <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. All right. Song of Solomon 5. 8 through 16, the Shulamite is speaking in verse 8, and then she'll speak again in verses 10 through 16. Who's the Shulamite? Well, the Shulamite is symbolic, allegorical for the bride of Christ. It's us. We're the Shulamite. And at this point in the book, in chapter 5, she's in the middle of a desert season where the Lord has sovereignly removed, listen to this, he sovereignly removed his felt nearness, his manifested presence from her life to see if her love has matured to the point where she is truly in it for him, <laughs> for relationship with him, instead of just one who's after the blessings that this beautiful God really does give. She's being tested to see if she is just using God as a means to her end or if God himself has become her chief end. That's why God sovereignly removed his felt presence. He never left her, just that felt awareness and nearness left her as a test that God ordained. This verse eight, her response here, and especially in verses 10 through 16, proves that this beautiful Shulamite has passed the test gloriously. This is my prayer for us, that we would pass these desert tests. She hasn't become offended or drawn back in the wilderness and barrenness and disappointment, which is so easy to do. She hasn't gone looking for other lovers or even the blessings that God gives. Instead, she's looking for God himself in verse 8. And she's frantically, in humility, asking the less spiritual, the less mature daughters of Jerusalem to help her find him, to help her find Jesus. It'd like be, be like me going to Zeb. I mean, he's very mature. He's close. I say, Zeb, help me find the Lord. I can't find him. Can you pray for me? 
I can't feel him. That's what she's doing here. She has become so lovesick because she chose to focus on Jesus instead of being preoccupied with the difficulties of the test and the desert surroundings. She overcomes her self-focus by going deep in searching out Jesus' beauty. She's matured in love and she's in it for the God-man, Jesus himself. And this is why she charges or adjures the daughters of Jerusalem to help her find him. She says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, if you find Jesus, tell him that I am lovesick. Well, the daughters of Jerusalem respond, these less spiritually mature believers who were friends of her, and they were intrigued and fascinated by the bride's love and devotion to her king, even in the midst of severe trials. And I'll just tell you this, your greatest witness isn't your wisdom, it isn't your preaching power, it isn't the eloquence of your speech, it isn't how much Bible you know, it's how much in love are you with Jesus. That's your greatest witness. Do you really love him? Do you really love him? And these daughters of Jerusalem are looking at the Shulamite and be like, she really loves him. He's removed his presence, his felt presence. He's removed her ministry. She's been beaten up by the spiritual leaders of her day in the previous verse, but she still wants him. This is real. So they asked this question. They said, what is your beloved more than another beloved? Why is he so special, O fairest among women? What is your beloved, this Jesus, more than another beloved? And the world needs to be asking you that question. Why is Jesus so important to you? Why is he so beautiful to you? What have you seen that I haven't seen that you so charge us to go look for him with you? You see, the daughters had other beloveds, other beauties that they were placing above the ultimate beloved. They didn't get it yet. They had other loves that were more important to them than the Shulamite's beloved. They had other people, friends, businesses, ministries, money, leisure, pleasure, power, preeminence, comfort. They had other lovers. But because the Shulamite's lifestyle was so sold out, so singular, so satisfied with the bridegroom and the bridegroom alone, because her love was so real and palpable and fragrant, these daughters were curious to see if the hype was real. The Shulamite bride responds to their sincere, repeated question with an explosion of her heart, waxing eloquent by the Spirit of God about the beautiful Jesus. In verses 10 through 16, these seven verses contain arguably the most clear and magnificent description of the beauty of Jesus in all of Scripture. She uses imagery here from the human body and agricultural terms and symbols from the the temple to paint a picture of Jesus. Heaven, or the temple, has truly met earth, or the agriculture, in the body of Jesus. That's the imagery she used. The temple, heaven, agriculture, earth, met in the body of Jesus. Heaven meets earth in Jesus, and that's what these descriptions tell us about. There are 16 descriptions, 10 specific and 6 general, that we'll look at very quickly. Let's look at them now and be blessed by them. Let me just say, revelation of these attributes to the human heart, when we go through the storms of life, it will bring stability. Just like it brought David in Psalm 27, 
and throughout his whole life. It'll bring real stability, just like it brought to the Shulamite. Let's look at it. Verse 10, this is a Shulamite speaking. She says this, she says, my beloved is white and ruddy, chief or distinguished among 10,000. This word white means more clearly in the Hebrew, shining in dazzling radiant splendor, bright brilliance. He's the brightest star in the room by 10,000 times. Hebrews 1 says of Jesus, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Matthew 17, 2, when he appeared to the three disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Revelation 21, 23, we're going to have no electricity bills in heaven forever. Why? Because the lamb himself, this beautiful God-man, is the light of heaven. There's no street lights. There's no house lights because the lamb himself is that brilliant. Do you see how much or how little we see? We think of him as a normal human. He is shining in brilliant, radiant splendor. He's ruddy, the next description. Ruddy speaks of Jesus' humanity. He had a healthy, reddish tint to his skin. That means he had healthy blood flow. It's the exact opposite of someone who's sickly and pale. He was healthy, he was vigorous, blood coursing through his veins. He was chief, distinguished among 10,000. 10,000 was a number used in the Bible to denote an innumerable, countless, as far as the eye could see number. So it means as far as you can see. So when she says he's chief or distinguished above 10,000, it's saying he's better and more beautiful than all of us, and it's not even close. Guys and gals, you might have a beautiful spouse or love interest or really cool. They ain't nothing compared to this beautiful man. He's so much better than the most beautiful person on earth. Because he made them. How beautiful must he be? Verse 11. She says, his head. Why is he better than other beloveds? His head is like the finest or purest gold. His locks are wavy as black as a raven. His head, this speaks of Jesus' sovereign leadership over all of history and over every individual life. In the body, the head leads, guides, and directs. The head thinks and makes decisions and goes first. Jesus goes before us. He's in our tomorrow just as much as he's in our today and in our past. What is his head like? What is his leadership like? It's like the finest or purest gold. His leadership in our lives is perfect. There is no flaw in his perfect path of peace for our lives. Even when his spirit leads us sovereignly into wilderness seasons, his leadership is perfect. Every plan, every motive, every thought in his heart for us is perfect and pure. And we can sit under those as we focus on this head that is pure gold. Say, your leadership is perfect. Your thoughts towards me are only good. There's no mixture. There's no impurities. There's no dross or wax in his golden leadership. His leadership is the finest, rarest, most valuable leadership in the earth. Lean on it. Seek it. Lean and seek his pure golden head. 
His locks or his hair is wavy, black as a raven. What does this mean? The wavy black locks or his hair speaks of his dedication to God and his bride. The Nazarites in the Bible, they had a vow that forbade them to cut their hair because it was an outward sign of their inward, complete, and total dedication and consecration to God. So that's what it's pointing to here. Samson and John the Baptist were prominent Nazarites in the Bible. These long locks of Jesus speak of his loyal and faithful love, his consecrated love for us. Even when we are unfaithful and faithless and we have movements of infidelity in our hearts towards him. The fact that they are wavy and black also speaks of Jesus' eternal, youthful, energetic, and vigorous zeal to be faithful to God and to us, his people. They speak of a man in the prime of his life, contrasting it to the thinning gray hair that usually shows up in the later years of life when vitality wanes. Jesus' dedication is eternally vigorous. He never grows tired. He never sleeps. He never stops helping us. He lives forever in his resurrected body. He's eternally youthful. He's found the fountain of youth because he himself is the fountain of youth. (laughs) Verse 12, I love this one. His eyes, the eyes of Jesus are like doves. By the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His eyes are like doves. His eyes speak of omniscience, brilliance, and wisdom. His ability to see and know everything down to the most minute detail, he sees it all. This is so encouraging when we come under accusation of the enemy or accusation from someone around us that is false. He knows that you're innocent. He knows that you haven't thought or done that thing. When the enemy tries to accuse you for things you never did or accuse your motives when they, when they weren't wrong, Jesus knows. He knows us. He sees it all. His vision is perfect. And it gives an imagery here of his vision being like doves. What does that mean? Well, doves in nature have a fixed, undistracted gaze. They have binocular vision, and therefore they can only focus on one image at a time. They can only look at one thing purely at a time. They also only have one mate for their entire life, which is rare in the animal kingdom. So when Jesus says, it says he has dove's eyes, it means that he has the ability to treat all of us as if we were his main subject. This is unfathomable but true. In his omniscience and omnipresence, he has full attention, 100% on every single human, 100% of the time. We are all God's favorite. He has dove's eyes only for us. Jesus has eyes only for me. Say that out loud. Jesus has eyes only for me. If you were the only one who said yes, he would have done it all. You're his favorite. You're his prize. You're his beloved. His eyes are by the rivers of waters, meaning his eyes are informed by the river of the Holy Spirit flowing from the very throne of God in heaven, the source of life, the river of revelation, which means that he has the ultimate heavenly perspective. He sees the end from the beginning, and so he knows how to get us there. (laughs) 
His eyes are washed with milk. This revelation didn't hit yesterday until Briggs, our little baby boy, was drinking milk out of a cereal bowl. And I realized, oh, I didn't have much on this until he did that, and then it hit me. Washed with with milk. What does that mean if his eyes are washed with milk? This speaks to the fact that Jesus' loving eyes looking towards us in affirmation and affection nourishes our deepest needs and deepest longings for acceptance. Just like a mother's milk nourishes and meets a newborn's deepest nutritional needs and that universal longing for acceptance. When he looks at us, we're accepted and we're nourished. And that's all we need, his loving eyes. Just like a baby, you don't have to feed that thing anything else for at least the first year, sometimes up to three, four, five years, depending on the culture and the mom. Verse 13, his cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. Cheeks. Jesus' cheeks reveal his emotional chemistry, including his passions and pleasures and delights. Our cheeks, guys, reveal our emotions. Jesus has real emotions, just like you and me, but way better and way more pure. His emotions are perfectly righteous and just, even in their varied complexity, like that that table with all the spices on it and that field with all the different flowers. Jesus' emotional life is like a bed of spices. This speaks of an extravagant amount of a diversity of fragrances representing the fact that he has a complex, diverse range of emotions. It also represents that there is no end to the discovery of his emotions. There is no end to his joy. You can always get happier in God. There is no end to his peace. You can always become more shalom-filled in this beautiful God. There's no end to his fun-loving nature, yet also his incredibly intense, severe nature, which demands obedience. Jesus' emotions are fresh, aromatically pleasing, beautiful, and righteous to those who are in right relationship with him. To those who aren't, they don't smell good, just like some flowers don't smell good. This speaks, his lips right here, his lips are lilies. His lips are lilies, I love that phrase, the alliteration there. His lips are lilies. The lips speaks of Jesus' words, you probably guessed that. The words that he speaks to God and speaks to his people. What does it mean that they're like lilies, but also dripping with myrrh, which is an embalming oil, speaks of death? How can they be both smelling like lilies and death? Or at least the oil that prepares bodies for death. Well, it's very clear, his words are anointed and full of sweetness and purity and beauty and grace to the humble heart. But also his words are full of cutting conviction, causing death to self. He says, you want to follow me? Deny yourself and pick up your cross. Lose your life so you may find it. That is both sweet and myrrh-filled right there. (laughs) Myrrh-filled, those words. His words cut us. You ever been convicted by the words of God? (laughs) You ever been cut? Well, that cut is ultimately to heal you. Just like a good surgeon will cut you to heal something and then put ointment on it to heal you. That's what God does. He wounds us to heal us. He bruises us to make us better. 
Verse 14, his hands are rods of gold. I can't believe we're going to get through this. His rods are gold. His hands are rods of gold. His hands speak of Jesus' power and works, his actions on the world stage in history, and his actions in our individual lives. What does rods of gold mean? Gold speaks of the, of the, the divine nature, divine authority, divine power and faith. He has all power meaning he's omnipotent. But again, he uses this power in a pure way with pure motives to beautify his people. His hands are set with beryl. What is beryl? Beryl is one of the precious stones that was in the high priest's breastplate worn in the temple. So this speaks to the fact that Jesus is our eternal high priest, meaning he prays for us in the heavenly temple. His primary activity, the primary work of his hands is actually prayer. (laughs) This is staggering. His primary job for the last 2,000 years has been to pray for Ashton Reese. For real. His primary job has been to have dove's eyes on your past, present, and future and pray for your prosperity in every area. Jesus is praying for you. It's his primary occupation, and it should be ours too, no matter where we get our paychecks from. We should have barrel in our arms, meaning we're priests going before the Lord in prayer and intercession. His body, or his belly, that's another translation of this word, his belly, or his heart, or his womb. This speaks of Jesus' tender compassion. The same word here used for body was used earlier in the chapter in verse 4 for a yearning heart. So you can plug in yearning heart for this verse. His yearning heart is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. That's so beautiful. Carved ivory. This is his, Jesus' heart, his womb, his deepest place is like carved ivory, which is rare and requires great skill and attention to carve into something beautiful. Jesus' compassion for us moves his heart and compels his feet toward us in order to carve us and mold us and shape us into a perfect, pure bride one without spot or blemish, a suitable partner for the perfect one himself. His innermost being is inlaid with sapphires. That's that bottom gem. This brilliant blue gem speaks of the heavenly realm. His compassion, guys, is heavenly. Why is it heavenly? Because this precious gem, sapphires, is a range of color from heavenly sky blue to royal blue to dark blue, midnight blue. It's all about the heavens. This speaks to the fact also that Jesus is the ultimate heavenly man. He was made for heaven. And he makes us fit and suitable for heaven ourselves. We have a body of dust, a lowly, dumpy body that's going to get tired this afternoon probably. Well, there's a better body coming, and that's what these sapphires represent. He inlays us with sapphires in a sense when he gives us that indestructible body at his return. His legs are pillars of marble, verse 15, set on bases of fine gold. His countenance or his face is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His legs speak of his administration of his purposes. You use your legs to walk progressively forward. This speaks of his progressive kingdom that will know no end, his legs. He will never stop, his kingdom will never stop growing in effectiveness and power and beauty and glory. See Isaiah 9 for that truth. His his legs are like pillars of marble, meaning his governmental leadership over the planet right now and in the age to come is compared to pillars of marble. These pillars speak of strength, stability, 
order and beauty. Marble is a strong, valuable, and permanent building material. So Jesus' governance over the earth and our lives is strong. It's stable. It's orderly. But it's also lovely and beautiful, just like pillars of marble. Marissa, you can come up. His countenance or his face. This speaks of the very face of Jesus, the face of God. Aaron and David in the Old Testament prayed most often for what? They prayed for the Lord to lift up the light of his face upon his people. They wanted to see that brilliance. So this prayer really in its essence is a prayer for God to impart his own beauty and glory to his people as they look at him through faith. Well, what is his face actually like? We saw in verse 10 and other places it is indescribably brilliant, bright, and radiant. Well, right here it says it's like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. What does that mean? Well, the cedars of Lebanon were the most beautiful and impressive living things in nature and biblical geography. Nothing could compare to the cedars of Lebanon. Just like if you've seen the sequoias on that eight-mile stretch of the western slope of the Sierra Nevadas in California, you can truly say after you see them, nothing compares. So what is this verse saying? Saying Jesus' face is the cedar of Lebanon. It's the sequoia. Nothing can compare to this face. It's the most beautiful and impressive living thing in all the geography of the universe, not just the Middle East or California. Last verse, his mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. This mouth, this is distinct from the lips. It's more closely related to general intimacy with God. Song of Songs 1 starts with a prayer for the Lord himself to kiss her with the kisses of his mouth. So kissing represents intimacy. His mouth is what? It's most sweet. Look at that word most. The bride found by looking back at her life and comparing all her other lovers and all the other beauties to the love and beauty of this beloved, in that comparison, she found that none were as sweet and good as this Jesus. Nothing delighted her heart like he did. Jesus was and is and always will be the sweetest part of our days. Nearness to him is the sweetest reality in the universe. Investing in intimacy with Jesus is the most sweet activity you can invest in. It's the one thing that's needed. And if you taste and see that his nearness is your greatest good, you will be spared, I promise you, you will be spared from great fear, great heartache, great lust, and ultimately the great falling away. He is altogether lovely. We sung it earlier, the bride sums up her response to the daughter's question, what's the big deal? With this all-inclusive, all-encompassing evaluation of the beauty of her bridegroom king, he is altogether lovely or beautiful. He is the definition of beauty. There is no flaw in him. He is the consummate perfection in body, soul, and spirit. Does it get better than him? No. Now in our weak humanity, we would expect that someone this perfect wouldn't want to have anything to do with us. With all of our imperfections and weakness, why in the world would he want to be with us? But that's where these last lines in the verse 16 stagger us with his humility and his desire for us. She says, this is my beloved. This is my beloved. 
and this is my friend. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem. Guys, he is ours, and we are his forever. We have unfettered, exclusive access to the most excellent of kings. The door is always open. He's never too busy for us. He never doesn't want to be near us. He actually enjoys and likes us like we do our best friend, but in a more perfect way. We're his delight. We're Beulah to him, which a word means we're married to him forever. So let's stand to our feet now and respond. I just invite you all to stand. Revelation 4.1 promises us an open door. John saw this. He said, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. The same voice, the same door in heaven is open for all of us today. Through the blood, you have access, unfettered access to the beauty realm of God. He's saying, come up here. But just like in Sloan's example with the the mud on the eyes, there has to be a response on our end. We have to go to the pool of Siloam, in a sense. We have to say yes and actually make the step to come up there. I've said it before in this message, and I'll say it stronger now. If Jesus' beauty isn't our one thing, our main priority in the end, we will most likely fall away in deception, fear, offense, or lust. The one thing, the subject of God's beauty isn't optional or only for the super spiritual or fiery believer. I firmly believe that the only believers left standing in the end will be the lovesick Shulamites and the daughters of Jerusalem who have joined her in her pursuit. The ones with the heart of David the heart of John the Beloved, the heart of Mary Magdalene, those will be the only believers left. God will only have David's, Mary's, and John's. So let's respond now. Here's the invitation by choosing Psalm 27.4 individually for each one of our lives. I want to invite you to sign up for the first time or for the hundredth time to choose the one thing all over again to choose the better part of the beauty of Jesus, just like David, John, and Mary chose. If you want to make this commitment, this vow, what is it? It's a public statement of you saying, I want to become a person fascinated with the one thing of the beauty of God. You're saying, I want to go deep in the Bible as it relates to biblical descriptions of his beauty. I want to have him as my magnificent obsession. I want to see him better. You want to have him as your primary ambition and fascination, I invite you right now to go ahead and sign your name at the bottom of that sheet. On the back of your notes, there is actually a line where you can sign your name. And this is between you and God. You're not going to turn it in anywhere. This is between you and God. You can go home or you, you can put it on the altar if you want, but you might need the notes later. So you can take it home and present it before God and said, I want to be one of those believers who makes an eternal impact. And the greatest way I can make an eternal impact is to be fascinated with your beauty. I want to be a believer who is not caught in the snare of demonic fear, lust, deception, and offense. I want to be caught up out of the mud of this 
broken world and caught up into heaven in that open door. So go ahead and sign your name on that bottom of that sheet, either now or, or after. Four quick verses to encourage our hearts that God really can reveal his beauty. Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. If you choose purity, God says, you're gonna see me in the world around you. You're gonna see me in the Bible. You're gonna see me through faith. You're gonna see me in worship. He said that. If you have a pure heart, if you go after purity in your activities and your thoughts and your emotions and your motives, if you go after purity, you'll see me. Ephesians 1, we talked about it earlier. God wants to give you eyes. He wants to make you a four-living creature type of heart in the earth. Isaiah 33, 17, I love this verse. It's so wild. The Lord literally says, he says, your eyes, Stephen Lavaggi, your eyes. Colby, your eyes. Those weak eyes, they might be perfect, but they're still weak compared to what they'll be. Those eyes will see the king in his beauty. I have minus four vision. My eyes, I can barely see Timothy if I don't have my contacts on. These eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. That's the new Jerusalem and the king reigning on his throne. You're going to see those with your very own eyes. Well, guess what? You can start to see them now. Song of Solomon 8. Pray this verse. I encourage you to look up this verse later and pray it over your own heart. Basically, God has a divine fiery seal of his very flame that comes from his heart that he wants to put on your heart and your arm. He wants to seal you with his very own fire, and it's the fire of jealous love for him, where he's the only one in your field of vision. Pray that prayer in Song of Solomon 8, 6, and 7. Say, God, set a seal upon my heart. Set a seal upon my eyes. Seal me for only you. Don't let me look to the right or to the left. Let me look at you. So I'm going to invite up the prayer teams that I texted. I texted specific people to come and pray for this one thing. Go ahead and come up and there should be eight of you guys. Four facing the other. We're gonna have a mini fire tunnel. If you don't know what a fire tunnel is, you basically walk up, have an open heart and people will pray for you that you would receive grace and help to walk out this decision to make Jesus as your one thing. We need help. I need help. If anyone signed their name or you're going to sign your name, you need help. Because there are a thousand other beauties that are vying for your attention and your heart. So he, these people are going to quickly lay hands on you. You're going to walk through it slowly, but you've got you to make your way through. And they'll lay hands on you and pray for help, for divine might, divine strength to keep fighting to make Jesus as your one thing. So I'll invite at this section first. If you have signed it or want to sign that, Go ahead and walk through, starting now. We'll do it section by section. Once everyone's done here, we'll go middle section and far section. And Marissa's gonna sing over us. So if you're in the, in the audience waiting, just receive this blessing, because Marissa is someone who lives out the one thing too. She lives out the one thing, so she's gonna sing a blessing of grace to live out the one thing. Go ahead, Marissa. Thanks for listening to the weekly sermon. To download the notes and slides for this message, visit our website, riverinthehills.com. If you would like to partner with us in moving God's heart and changing the world, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a review, and share this episode with a friend.